Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Uh, and this is episode 101, the top five docudramas with black leads. Uh, Frank, we're over the hump now in terms of the 100th episode, um, but not necessarily slowing down because we have uh, four weeks in a row that we're going to be recording the podcast. And we're starting this week um, in February with uh, docudramas with black leads. So how are you feeling about the next 100? Um, I'm looking forward to it. There's a bunch of good ones this year that I'm excited to get through the lists on and um, watch some movies again. So, yeah, I mean, good. this this was good too. I I enjoyed this list. I did too. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, the next year, few months, which we have planned out. Uh, just so everybody knows, uh, up through May right now, we have planned out um, firmly. Uh, this week, it's uh, docudramas with black leads. Next week, uh, we continue on in 1990s horror, where we cover the year 1991. In March, we're doing uh, the top five films uh, that take place during one day. And then the next top five compelling female protagonists. And then 92 horror. Then in April, we'll be joined by friend of the podcast, Jason Heaster, to cover all four Indiana Jones movies and a third man. Uh, we'll be doing the top five movies filmed in Maryland. Uh, to honor our great state. Um, home state. Home state. There you go. Uh, 93 horror. And then in May, which I'm just going to call the month of Chris, it is the next mm. five crime films in the 1970s. Um, the Fresh Five, uh, where Frank will go through uh, the first half of the year of his top five movies, regardless of genre and year. And then um, we will be doing the movies that Chris loves, but Frank is indifferent to. And then finishing off with 1994 horror. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of uh, interesting and I think probably really good um, <clears throat> uh, episodes coming up. Uh, a, lot, a lot of good movies to watch. It's going to be tough to wait until um, May to do the Fresh Five. I mean, I already have a Fresh Five. <clears throat> Maybe the Fresh fine. Five will change. <clears throat> probably will, so that's really annoying because I have to, <laughs> to keep updating shit. Right. <clears throat> fine. <laughs> All right. So when it comes to these movies tonight, were there any that came close to making the list but didn't? Yeah, so maybe like post 100th episode regrets. Um, I was watching one of these the other day and I thought like, Jesus, like, why didn't I put Hotel Rwanda on here? Mm. Like, that seemed like an obvious miss for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I... I kind of regret not having like a, any female leads. Like maybe I mean I don't know if I even like what this love got to do with it, but that's a really good performance. Sure. Yeah. Um, I I don't I don't dislike that movie. That's a good. Movie. Like there's just there's other things that I we could have chosen to do, and I don't. Know. I think I just went with my gut like right away with the first five movies that I really thought of that I enjoy a lot. So yeah. maybe not the best movies. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I watched because uh, I had only seen bits and pieces of it um, before. I watched the Hurricane. Um, uh, besides this, and I ended up. I I think I told you I watched Red Tails, um, which I didn't think was a, a very good movie overall, but um, it was fun. I guess it was harken back to I think a, a different time of filmmaking um, that Lucas grew up on. Uh, Tuskegee Airmen's good. Um, the old HBO. 
um, movie. I mean, I don't know if it's better than these five movies, but it's it's a good movie. Uh, have you yeah. seen Get On Up? That's, That's the um, James Brown Bossman yeah. performance. No, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, um, yeah, I haven't seen that either. What do you think of Ali? I never, I've never seen it. It's a really good performance. I, I think of Ali in the same way that I think of. This seems like a really obvious connection, but I think of the same way I think of the Hurricane, which mm-hmm. is a moderately mediocre movie that's carried by like a pretty monumental performance. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, sure. Same with that. Um, with Ray, you know, I, mean, right. I think Ray is like, I think Ray's a pretty mediocre movie in terms of the filmmaking, but I think that that's like an amazing, amazing performance. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually like we just we could do like all another like top five of the same topic. I think pretty easily, right? Yeah, I I I mean I kind of went through like a biopic type things, uh, and uh, there really wasn't a lot when it came to women. I'll be honest. I mean, it's probably just you know the industry is my guess to some degree, but certainly wasn't a lot out there. There's some stuff that I haven't seen, like hidden figures. Right. Yeah. I imagine it would be good. Yeah. And then, um, what's that one? Shit. It came out a few years after Hotel Rwanda. It's like the Reading Circle, or no, that's not what it's called. It's another one I haven't seen, but I remember it garnered a lot of acclaim. I can't recall. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Let's just go ahead and just jump right in here, um, because I think there's a lot to talk about with all these movies to some degree. So uh, number five on your list is 2007's American Gangster. It is directed by Ridley Scott, stars Denzel Washington in the lead role, uh, also stars Russell Crowe, uh, Chiwetel IGO 4 Cuba Gooding Jr. and Josh Brolin has an 81% from critics and an 83% from audiences. You want to tell us just a little bit about this movie and why you have it on the list? Um, so it's the... The true story, I guess, like it's some debate about whether some of it's like fictionalized based on his own recollections. But um, the story of Frank Lucas uh, kind of rising to power as the preeminent heroin dealer and drug lord um, of New York in the 1970s. Um, and then his, I guess, like fall from grace, um, basically getting getting caught by the police and then really like turning... Um, Kind of state's evidence to expose like large scale corruption um, in the NYPD. Um, it's just as much the story of uh, Russell Crowe's um, Richard Roberts, is that right? Uh, yeah, Richard, Richard Roberts, Roberts yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who was like the, the quote unquote like one good cop that sort of like, you know, stuck with trying to bring him down and wouldn't take graft and wouldn't like steal and eventually became. Um, Lucas's defense attorney um, for his trial. Um, I mean, there's a lot that happens in this movie. It's 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 a pretty pretty classically told. I think like it feels like a '70s gangster movie. I think more than mm-hmm. like a modern gangster movie. Um, and I think that that probably is just because most of it takes place like in and around the 1970s. Right. Um, but just like with the way that Ridley Scott directs it, like he's got a very classical. Um, 
classical feel to his direction. Um, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that are, I think, pay homage to stuff like The Godfather, just in the lighting and the scene composition and um, the way that Lucas is filmed. I don't know if noble is the right word, but like a guy who just was making a um, making a buck like around the system and like not necessarily a terrible person, but somebody that also did like good things for people, even though like he was you know, the head of a heroin trade and like caused the deaths of a number of people. Right. Um, so to me, like there's two things about this movie that are really great. Um, and one of them is obviously Denzel uh, playing Lucas. Um, one of his most, it's actually funny because we'll talk about him again on this list, but it's like this really like powerful, self-assured performance that always feels like human, even though there's like almost a larger than life magnitude to Frank Lucas as a character. Like there's still a lot of humanity in Washington's portrayal of him. Um, and Russell Crowe is, is fine. There's a lot of, like, fine performances. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think that above and beyond, uh, like, Denzel just, you know, just an amazing role for him. Um, really like the soundtrack for this movie. Like, again, like, it's just, I don't know that I like it. I, I really struggled with this because originally I redid this list order, like, four or five times over the course of um, leading up to sending it to you, what, like, a half hour ago? And then even when I sent it to you, right. like I redid it like 30 seconds. Right. Um, I had American Gangster anywhere from three to five in mm-hmm. that range. Um, the top two never really changed, but I really struggled with like the top three or the bottom three, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's just like a very, a very well-made, very compelling performance in a story that I just kind of feel like I mean, we, we grew up listening to hip-hop, so, like, you knew who Frank Lucas was right. when you were a teenager. Even if you didn't know, like, anything about crime history or whatever, like, you knew the name Frank Lucas, you knew who this guy was. Like, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of inspiration in the hip-hop community from him, um, just in terms of his ability to, like, you know, basically do the impossible, which was, like, as a, you know, as a black man in New York, like, take over organized crime in a lot of like run out the um, whatever the Casanache or whatever the, the Italians and mm-hmm. like just, just sort of become like the preeminent power and so to me it almost I, I loved this movie when I saw it in 2007 like it was I thought it was phenomenal and I didn't expect to like it at all like I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. I was thinking it would be something like Hoodlum you know like just like cheap like exploitive like trash gangster movie right I definitely don't think it's that. I think it's like rises like far above that level. But to me, it's still it's just like I think maybe crime movies are sort of just boring to me anymore, mm-hmm. especially like these traditionally told. I don't even know like rags to riches kind of yeah. crime stories. Sure, um, the acquisition of power and the losing of power. I mean, like that's usually how these this genre plays out, right? I mean. Yeah. Even if it takes three movies and like The Godfather or one movie like Scarface, I mean that's how these all play out. Well, that's really what I thought about too. Is that it's been so 
recently that we watched Scarface, and I feel like, look, I think this is a better movie than Scarface, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably, probably not a very popular opinion, but I think that Ridley Scott is more self-assured in his direction. Um, and I think it tells a better, I wouldn't see if, even say coherent narrative. I just, I think maybe I just like Frank Lucas more than I like Tony Montana. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. Like, and I think that he's a more interesting character, and I think he's, I don't know. Tony, like, Tony, no, Tony of my toy is, a, is an asshole from pretty much start to finish. Um, there's very few redeeming things about him. Look, I mean, and Frank, this is actually part a major part of the criticism just in general of this movie is like what you've expressed so far, actually, in the sense that it, this movie tries to have it both ways, is that it wants to propel Lucas as a figure that should be, to some degree, glamorized because he is the you know black man who ended up you know gaining power over the italian mafia um but at the same time also show all the terrible things but and kind of have it both ways and um you know i know david anson of newsweek said specifically that that balancing act he thought really actually um made it so that like it doesn't really ignite as a picture i think was the word that he used and um what did he say here that it's always watching its own shadow so it never really sweeps you away um which i get that criticism i suppose like because it is very biopicish you know i mean like it it it, it isn't about feeling a lot of times um and carrying mm-hmm. you away with feeling i don't think but um i agree with you i think it's a very workmanlike movie like in terms of direction like it's hitting all the right notes it's doing all the right things in terms of cinematography um and it's i mean i think it's elevated by a lot of the performances but it's particularly denzel's and i think even crows i think this is one of crows better performances as well oh um i'm not a big fan of russell crowe but i thought he's really solid in this movie um it's it's only a few movies that i think that i really like him in and um but you know a good you know, surrounding supporting cast in terms of Roland and Gooding Jr. and uh, Edgy of Four. Like, you know, I mean, like all of those guys are um, solid in those roles. But uh, Denzel, I think, is, I would say after he got game, this is my favorite Denzel performance. Hmm. I definitely like his performance in the later film that we're going to talk about more than this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has that. Yeah, we'll talk about it then. But it's, I, I, I can see that, I, and I don't. I don't disagree. Like to some degree, I, I think you see more facets of his ability. Um, but I actually like the way he. It's more. I think this one's a little bit more subtle in the way that he of what he's got, what's going on internally in him, and I think he's projecting that through slight mannerisms and you know, faces and those kind of things in a much more subtle way in this movie. And it's, I think you called it restrained maybe like, but um, it's like, it's a very restrained performance um, of somebody who is, you said self-assured. I think that's what it was. Very self-assured. It's like, he knows at this point, like he's got this and um, it, it feels like he actually embodies this character where sometimes Denzel comes off as, 
like like training day is good but it's like he didn't deserve the oscar for that it was only because he was a villain i think um and they fucked him over so many other times that they finally gave it to him for training day this is one that he didn't even get nominated for and that's a shock to me like because i thought this was one of his better performances ever but i think he's really good at taking a character that is kind of the antagonist to some degree in terms of like what they're doing, but imbuing it with these, like at least in their mind, legitimate reasons for why they're doing things. And I think the character in he got game is very similar um, where it's like, he is the antagonist, at least from his son's perspective, but he has these very valid reasons for what he's trying to do in terms of reconnecting with him and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, I think he plays that role very well. Yeah, I mean, I really, I don't really have any criticism of it. Again, like, there's a certain, you know, we watched Across 110th Street whenever we did that um, mm-hmm. 70s crime, and uh, or was that Black Exploitation? That was Black Exploitation. That was a year ago. Yeah. Um, you look at like the, and I know that that film was made in the 70s, and so it's got a certain grittiness anyway. Just the feel of like, like the streets and the people in it, just the way that it's portrayed and I kind of I just feel like it's a very clean portrayal of crime and it it feels to me in a lot of like again I think that The Godfather is a really good comparison to it because it's like when you're a kid and when you're young and maybe even as an adult for like most people when you watch The Godfather you're kind of like swept up in like the decadent opulence of this untouchable family that like is involved in all these nefarious things, but is still like wealthy and respected and you know, can buy anything and is kind of above the law in that respect. And there's almost a part of you in these movies that kind of roots for the you know, the crime family to, to sort of get away with it in some ways. And like mm-hmm. again, like I don't think it's I don't think that's bad necessarily. I just don't know that I'm that interested in it anymore. Right. And I think maybe that's why like I moved it down to five. And really, probably, like, had I thought about it beforehand, would have replaced it on the list with a couple other things. Right. Um, but still, like, a really, really great movie. And, again, amazing performance by, by Washington. Yeah. No, agreed. Um, I think I still, I, I think because of the nature of the movie that it's not about basically Italian mobsters, I think it holds a, a special uniqueness to it that makes it you know, more palatable, even though I agree I'm sick of the, that genre as well. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I think just seeing a different culture in that role made it, makes it much more appealing and, um, uh, than those movies from the 70s and 80s and stuff. <clears throat> or 90s too, I guess, because Scorsese never stopped with that shit, did he? Um, <clears throat> I won't bring up Scorsese to you. Right. Yeah, um, <laughs> all right um yeah no it's it's a solid movie i really enjoyed watching it again um honestly it was like probably one of my it was one of my favorites like of watching these movies um rewatching it again i really enjoyed it tonight that i said i like got through it all in one sitting and you know it was enjoyable so number four on your list is uh a year before that, 2006, it's uh, Kevin McDonald's The Last King of Scotland, starring Forrest Whitaker, James McAvoy, Kerry Washington, and Gillian Anderson. It has an 87% for 
from critics and a 89% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what it is you like about it so much? Um, so follows the, uh, the fictional account of this um, young doctor, Nicholas Garrigan, who travels to Uganda kind of on a whim almost because um, he doesn't want to be stuck in Scotland. Um, he's a, he's newly graduated. He doesn't want to be like a family doctor. He wants to explore the world. So he goes to Uganda, um, to be kind of like a mission doctor almost, or a doctors without borders kind of doctor. Um, and eventually draws the attention of, um, a newly crowned Idi Amin, uh, as the president of Uganda, um, who's recently gained power in a coup. Um, Idi Amin played by Forrest Whitaker. So the idealistic and sort of like self-absorbed narcissistic young doctor kind of ignores some of the bad things that he's seeing in Uganda because he's given power and authority and this closeness with, um, you know, with the most powerful man in the country. Um, but eventually starts to see kind of the deterioration of, um, you know, Amin's mental stability, um, as he's executing, you know, dissidents at a very large, like in rapid pace, um, is eventually caught both trying to poison Amin and has also had been, had had an affair with, um, one of Amin's wives. Um, so he's beaten and is eventually like helped to escape by an, another idealistic young Uganda doctor that he had helped. Um, it's a weird movie because like, it's a good movie. It's very much um, kind of a condemnation of like, I mean, in uh, Whitaker's, I mean, says this basically in the movie that are you the white man that's come to save us because we, we black men can't, you know, we can't save ourselves. Like we need your, your whiteness to come and like, you know, help us or whatever. Um, I got, that's a really bad paraphrase of a really powerful speech in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting to like see it from that perspective of, you know, this sort of like almost willful ignorance on the part of, um, McAvoy's character to like sort of ignore some of the excesses and, or to sort of be like guided away from seeing the things that are wrong, um, by using his own hubris against them. Um, so that's, it's an interesting story in that respect. Um, but what's even more like powerful and amazing in the movie is Whitaker's performances. I mean, um, I don't know how I knew about Edie Amin at a young age, but I did for some reason. Um, so to me, it was like when I saw this movie and I think, I think I just bought this movie when it came out on DVD without like, yeah, you just bought it. Yeah. You just bought it from Walmart. Right. Um, just blown away by like the power of uh, Forrest Whitaker's performance, um, his physicality, his um, almost like chameleon ability to move between like lovable clown and force of nature, kind of just like unhinged tyrant. Um, it's a really powerful performance, and it's especially. I mean, I'm, I have spent like a lot of 
I say in the past and spent a lot of time reading about like African history and culture and um, different parts of Africa. And it was really fascinating, you know, to see like the, the sort of like rapid rise and whatever of like this despot um, who at one point was considered to be like a pillar of, you know, freedom in the world where there was like democratic countries were basically swooning at the ability to work with Amin and then right. to see like, you know, him basically lose his grip on reality and start to see enemies in every corner and just the, you know, the tragedy of like the genocide basically committed against his own people, just in an attempt to keep power. Um, but beautifully shot. It's um like an incredible look at I think like Africa in terms of like both the rural parts of Africa and the um more urban um parts. Um some really great performances in it. Uh again, like chief among them just Forrest Whitaker's EDME is so ridiculously good. Like it's yeah. one one of my favorite performances. It, maybe next to it, it's hard because I think that all five of these movies have these incredible like just portrayals of you know like real people, but there's something to be said for taking one of the most like vile dictators of the past 40 years, 50 years, and infuse like and in, in much in the same way that, that Washington does with Lucas, but in such a more like physical and like sweaty and like heavy, like you, you feel the weight of Idi Amin in like every scene that Forrest Whitaker's in. Yes. And even though like your protagonist in the movie has rose colored glasses, like you feel like the menace and the threat of like death like every single time like that man like turns his attention to whoever it is that he's talking to or whoever it is that's like displeased him or mm-hmm. his ability to just like forgive like these like giant slights because he's trying to appear right educated and called not not to say that he didn't mean he wasn't educated but like cultured and mm-hmm. you know like he's not this savage when in reality he could just like murder anyone around him at any second so it's um it's pretty brilliant yeah i i mean i don't have any problem myself saying i think this is the best acting performance on this list like just as a pure acting performance like it's it's one of the most powerful performances that we've talked about in a while i think um uh on the podcast honestly at least for me uh and probably the best acting performance of his career like the only thing that i think comes close for me is uh his season on the shield um in terms of 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 his acting on that but this just blows it away i mean there's so much nuance and um uh just a heft to this character that um he just like embodies like everything um and then look i don't know ed i mean but it's like you know in terms of creating a character out of them i mean yeah, I mean it's 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 incredible what he does. Um, I also thought too that it like. So here's what I want to bring. I like the first half of like I texted you during the first half of this movie when I was watching it. And I was like, Jesus, I forgot how damn good this was. And then I watched the second half, and it's not that I don't like the second half, but I think something gets lost in the second half of that movie um, to me. And but I love the first hour of this movie as because you understand why nicholas kind of almost like falls under the thrall of amin 
like you 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 get it like entirely like he is you know charming he has a sense of humor about him um you know and there's this like subtle thing they build in with the british where they both hate the british because it's it's made very clear that nicholas like doesn't like the british um himself and like there's a sense of camaraderie of like where he automatically thinks because the British are distrustful and watching Amin that that means Amin must be okay. And I can see where he very easily falls under this guy's spell. Um, especially when he's being paid so much attention to by him. And so it makes a lot of sense that he ignores some of these like signs or he doesn't. Yeah. He ignores them. Like he sees them. It's not that he doesn't see like some of them, but it's like he ignores them for a while till he can. It's really when the affair starts because all of this is fictional anyway. Right. It's like, it's really when they like make this plot of him having the affair with Amin's, like one of his wives is really kind of like where it turns for me. And like I said, I don't think it's bad. I just kind of lose interest in the story. It was like the build to it was much more interesting to me and captivating than kind of like the fallout where you don't really see on mean other than internally, like, you know, like in scenes with him go crazy, you don't really get a sense of the atrocities necessarily. Um, You know, and it's kind of like, you know, this white guy becomes the avatar for the atrocities. Like he's the one that's suffering, Um, which I don't think that's how they meant it, but it's certainly how you could see it coming off to some degree. So, and McAvoy's great. He's great. Like in that second half, like that, I think that's where like he really, he starts shining in the movie sure. a lot more, but, um, but yeah, like it was, it was, I thought the beginning was much, the first half was much more interesting than the second, but Whitaker is just solid all the way through and everything that he has to do is just nails it out of the park. And he's just as captivating when he's fucking nuts <laughs> as he is when he's trying right. to be charming in the beginning. You know, what's funny about that is, um, the thing with Amin's wife is like pretty much like one of the closer things to the truth. Really? Yeah. So his, his is, is wife, this because I don't know about it. You do. Like, is Nicholas like kind of a composite to some degree? Like a... sort of. There's so supposedly the guy that wrote the book that the movie's based on took um an Englishman who had become kind of like Amin's confidant and an actual Scottish doctor that was living in Uganda and sort of like. Yeah, like composited them into like a character. Okay. Um, Amin's wife had actually been impregnated by one of his physicians, hmm. and the physician um, mur- like killed her when he was trying to perform an abortion on her because they found out she was pregnant, and then um, dismembered her in order to hide the body. And Amin had the body found and reassembled, basically, um, which is for fucking nuts. Yeah. Um. Part of the like, I, I I think what led to the myth of him being a cannibal and whatnot, but um, mm-hmm. and also I think just because of like you know Western, whatever um, prejudices, sure. like sure. anyone from Africa is like a savage and a cannibal, um, especially in the nineteen seventies. But but yeah, there's like a lot of truth in that part of it, um, and with the um, the Palestinians landing the um, the uh, Israel, Israeli air, um, like hijacking it and landing it in Uganda and, um, the plane being stormed and like, cause that's one of the, that's in the coda. Um, but yeah, like, 
I kind of agree. And the reason, the only reason I think it falls apart towards the end is like, it's like, is McAvoy so, because like, listen, there's a bunch of like really beautiful black women in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking anything away from Kerry Washington, but like her, you know? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, even the character herself isn't necessarily very intriguing or engaging. Yeah, there's um, nothing about it where you're like, oh, right. Like, I see like how he like fell in love right. with her. It's like, yeah. It's almost yeah. like this dude is so needs like the forbidden fruit so much. Right. Right. Well, like, I mean, can't. which is kind of true because it's like, look at the beginning of the movie. I mean, he tries to steal the missionary doctor's wife, basically. Like, um, so it's almost like he's a serial adulterer. <laughs> yeah. And I also took that as to be just the idea that he's alone in this country and like this is the woman that he's around pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see that more where it's, like, what, you know, what I always call summer camp syndrome. Like, you know, this is a person that's here, and you're alone with them all the time, and it's like, oh, this is the greatest thing I'm ever going to have. And you Well, that is similar to the Kerry Washington character, though, right? Because isn't he, like, the idea he's visiting a lot because of the sun? Yeah, but he's also visiting, like, all of his other wives. True. He's, like, seriously surrounded by, like, Gorgeous, like half naked black women constantly. Like you can't find one other right like chick that suits your fancy aside from the wife of like the insane right you know dictator that controls every aspect of your life. Like that's crazy. Yeah, no, it's true. And he also he turns into a bitch when he's like, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Just let me go home. And it's like yeah. Wesley Morris, who I disagree with like a lot. He, we've we've talked about Wesley Morris from Boston Globe a lot on this podcast, um, where I brought him up and I disagree with the guy a lot. But he does say that he thinks it joins the ranks of um these nightmarish, what's he called? Nightmarish innocence abroad movies like Midnight Express and Hostile, where the disillusioned hero fights to return to civility. Um and kind of downs it for that reason of just kind of like engaging in these like stereotypes where these foreign places are uncivilized and the white person has to, you know, uh, escape the uncivil environments to get back to civility. Um, and is like dipping their toes in this, like, you know, kind of, you know, area before leaving. And, um, but I do agree with him that it feels like that, um, a little bit by the end. That's true. I don't disagree. Yeah. What's that? Um, what's that Thailand heroin movie with uh, who the fuck's in that movie? Claire Danes, maybe? No, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what you're talking about, Frank. There's a movie from right around this time that's based on a true story about this um group of young friends that tries to buy like a like a kilo of heroin okay um in thailand or malaysia or so, so somewhere in the south pacific um and ends up getting caught and going to jail mm. and then there's there's red corner which is like around this time too maybe a few years before it's red corner yeah i want to say red corner is like um no nah, red corner is 90s dude like that's that's little, yeah yeah Late 90, 90 97 yeah yeah okay yeah. Which I saw in the theater, oddly. Ten years before this movie, I guess. Right. Um, Damn, I can't believe Red Corner was that long. I know, right? Crazy. Uh, Red Corner is not a good movie. No, it's terrible. I saw it in the theater. It's awful. Um, uh, 
what is that on right now? That is on. Oh, it's on HBO Max. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I thought was interesting about this movie, last thing I have to say about it anyway, but it's like I thought was interesting is you talked about like, you know, being filmed well on the environments and stuff. I really think the environments added to it. I, I couldn't actually find where this movie was filmed at. Like if it was filmed, like where, like, you know, I'm assuming they filmed like the externals in Africa somewhere. Um, but this is filmed very much like a lot of movies of this time period, like the constant gardener, Syriana. Um, it feels very much like that kind of filmmaking style, but I think it's the best out of all those movies in terms of that filmmaking style um that i saw in terms of the way like just the cinematography and those kind of things i'm not a big fan of the constant garden or syrian or a lot of those type of movies from this time period um it feels like it's kind of in that vein a little bit but it's um uh but i think it's the best filmed out of all of them too um and a lot of that's probably because of the locales and you know the beauty of the area and stuff like that right it's also it's it's meant to be it's meant to be beautiful in a lot of ways, whereas stuff like Syriana and Constant Garden sure, it's true, it's true, are meant to be like war torn and gritty and really kind of like put you in a yeah, I don't know, put you in the yeah. mindset of like Syriana, especially Syriana is just a dirty fucking movie. Yeah, and like and I, yeah, and this is not, this isn't as overexposed, I guess, as like those movies are in terms of like I think that's the right term, like in terms of like the the film stock or whatever. Um, it feels very bright and like, you know, uh, uh, this doesn't necessarily feel, feels bright. It feels more colorful than those movies are, but, um, but it still feels like it's that very kind of same type of cinematography, same type of filmmaking. And yeah, it's, it's that, it's that naturalistic, almost like cinema verite of the mid mid 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I do think this is the best out of out of those types of movies that I can recollect, at least anyway, right now. Um. One of one of my, like I just I just want to say one more time before mm-hmm. we move on to the number three, like fucking Forrest Whitaker is just so yeah. I don't know, just it's it's so amazing like that performance. It, it really yeah, it, it's it's surprising that it didn't garner more recognition. They won best actor for it in the in the Oscars. Yeah. Did he really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no shit. We just didn't so, care like, about the Oscars by that point. <laughs> right, that's true. Oh yeah, he won like all the awards that year. Um He should have. Oh yeah, <laughs> Golden Globe, Academy Award, holy shit. Yeah, right. What yeah. fucking what hold on, I gotta look up the 79th Academy Awards now. Tell me shit about shit. <laughs> oh, Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, the departed one best picture. Oof. <laughs> We're not gonna talk about Scorsese tonight. <laughs> We'll save it. Oh man, that was Babel, and no, that was another one that falls in that category of all that stuff, all those movies. Yeah, you know what it is? It's because of what else was nominated this year. What else was nominated? I haven't looked that up. So it's The Departed, and then Pan's Labyrinth, which I I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Dream Girls, An Inconvenient Truth, Little Miss Sunshine, Babel, um, Happy Feet, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. Marie Antoinette. Oh Christ! Did they already started the ten the ten movies by this point? No, no, no. This is just stuff that was nominated for multiple. Oh, okay. All right. right. No, no, no. That'd be crazy. Scorsese won for best director. Yeah. So what? uh, I mean, I don't. I I don't see what else is out there. But uh, I mean, that's not absurd. Um. 
I don't like that movie, like, but whatever. Um, but you what else? Picture nominees? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have it that. Was, uh, the Departed, uh, Babel, Letters from Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. Little Miss Sunshine, and The Queen. So, three of those movies don't even belong on that fucking list. I don't care if the audience hears me pour another drink after that fucking list or not. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you the departed, whatever is 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 fine. Like the departed could be on there. I'm fine with it being nominated. Yeah. Babel is fine too. Letters from Iwo Jima is some fucking bogus ass. I don't know whatever. Yeah, the fucking yeah. greatest generation bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, World War Two movie. Ugh. Yeah, right. Yeah. Little Miss Sunshine is fine, but it's like no, it's no, just, no, no, don't, don't, don't. It's not a best picture. No, it's not. It's not. That's definitely true. Really uh, but real quick, real quick, what are the what are the best actors? That's what I really want to know. Like out of since he uh, won those, Whitaker and then DiCaprio and Blood Diamond, uh, Ryan Gosling and Half Nelson, which I've never even seen, um, Peter O'Toole and Venus, which I've never seen, and Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness, which which is a good performance. Mm-hmm. And then best actress, not that the matters, but just because we're here, yeah. Um, Helen Mirren in The Queen, uh, Penelope right. Cruz in Volver. Um, Judy Dench in Notes on a Scandal, which is a really fucking boring ass movie. Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, which I, I agree with that. And Kate Winslet in Little Children, which I haven't seen. That's the amazing thing about these fucking movies that get nominated for everything is like I never goddamn seen them. Right. Like someday we're going to have to do a fucking top five movies that everyone jerked off to that Frank has never bothered to watch. But then it'll be irrelevant because I'll bother to watch them. Three billboards outside Epping, Missouri. Um, I, no, I watched that. Yeah. <laughs> So did I actually. Um, she's good in it. Yeah, it's a good performance. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I am not watching her new movie, but whatever. Um, What's I her new movie? Oh God, I don't know. It's on Hulu right now. Like it's a Hulu exclusive, but um, it was released. I can't remember. Uh, Francis McDormand. Yeah. Oh. Uh, you say Fargo? No, 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 Nomadland is what it's called. Um. I, I, it's not my cup of tea. I can't watch it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of like a weak list overall. Like, um, but even if it was a strong list, he still would have deserved to win because it's just an out, a crazy performance. Oh, yeah. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I know I saw like one piece of criticism as I was like scanning through, like even positive criticism that, um, compared. Um, mean like his his portrayal of Amin is almost like playing him like Macbeth, and I thought like Jesus isn't like that that that's true first of all to some degree, um, but also like how how fucking good with would, would Whitaker actually be at Macbeth like, um, yeah. just ramping it down just a little bit, you know, um, from from that performance, um, it would actually be probably a really good role for him. But yeah, no. I mean, it's a, it's a movie that ultimately I think is uneven, but is saved by just a, one of the best performances I've ever seen. So, <clears throat> all right. So number three on your list is um, the at one time controversial um, in 1992, Malcolm X, directed by Spike Lee, and stars Denzel Washington. As Malcolm X, Angela Bassett, Albert Hall, Al Freeman Jr., Delroy Lindo, Teresa Randall. I, I can't do justice to all the people that are actually in this movie, but um, it is an 89% from critics and a 91% from audiences. And you want to just tell us a little bit about this and uh, why you have it on the list? So it follows Malcolm X, um, 
from his childhood in um, rural Michigan, um, as Malcolm Little, to his basically being sent to live in a variety of orphanages and foster homes. Um, his time as a numbers runner and um, I guess like low level, like housebreaker um, in Harlem um, to his incarceration, his eventual conversion to Islam through the nation of Islam. Um, his time is like the right hand man of um, uh, Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad, right. Um, to his like splintering with that group and his pilgrimage to Mecca and then his eventual assassination. Um, so it really, I mean, it really encompasses like a huge span of time, like the entirety of a man's life, basically. And unlike most um, biopics, it doesn't really force itself to stick to any one period to give it more weight. Like, it definitely takes its time with, like, building your familiarity with Malcolm Little as a criminal and a philanderer and, you know, just generally not a good man, like, to that slow at first conversion to, like, the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and then, like, his almost meteoric rise as a the front man for um, the nation of Islam and like everything is done with a very like reverent, um, reverent eye. And, you know, just, you can tell that Spike Lee like wants to tell this man's entire story so that you can get the complexity of all of it. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the entirety of Malcolm X as a person and like kind of understand when he makes decisions and changes and you know sort of like grows so it's incredibly ambitious to be like that almost precious about the details of a man's life but um i think that i think that it does it justice um i know that when you're watching this movie it feels like you feel the runtime of this movie for sure um Hmm. and from like a narrative standpoint like i wish that some parts have been shortened a little bit yeah which to me is why it's not like higher on the list, I think, because um, this is my argument, like for this performance over um, Frank Lucas, uh, in the sense that he changes so much as a character. Yeah. Like you feel this man age, mm-hmm. and not just because they give him makeup or change his appearance, but like, he feels like a kid, like in his late teens, early twenties, when you first meet him in the movie. And he feels like a fully grown man, like by the end of the movie. And you really just subtle changes in mannerisms and demeanor and countenance and posture, like all of these things that he just like these subtle variations on himself, basically, to portray this person. Yeah. It's just, I, don't know, I, I think it's amazing. No, it is, and I don't want you to lose your train of thought, like, with other things you have to say about it, but I do want to just interject here. One of the things that, like, I I think I like that c- character of Frank Lucas more because of the subtlety of, like, just the performance of that one character, where I was saying I could see you saying that this was the better performance is because this almost previews 
every different role of Denzel's career. Like this one, this one role of Malcolm X here, like right. almost like gives you every single facet, like every single different type of performance. That because Denzel will gotten is in a wheelhouse in the past fifteen years, like you know maybe twenty years, where it's like he doesn't take a he doesn't go outside the wheelhouse that much. He never really has, but he's got like you know a fairly you know big wheelhouse. But it's like he never goes outside of it really, right. and he gives you the entire wheelhouse in one performance here. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you get the the charmer, the huckster, mm-hmm. the violent criminal. You get mm-hmm. the um, the penitent man. You get the militant man. Yep. The educated, you know, yeah. well reasoned, yeah. um, teacher kind of figure. Yep. You get the the paranoia towards the end that he that he can display. The wiser, older, like spiritual man. Yeah. The yeah. It's, there, there's there's a lot of greatness. Yeah, and it's like, like I I've been around a lot of people. Like I have friends who um, believe in some manner in the the beliefs of the Nation of Islam um, mm-hmm. in terms of like the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And, you know, I like I've I've heard them like talk, and the way they talk is the way that you know Denzel talks when he's speaking as as Malcolm X, mm-hmm. especially in that mid part of the movie. And it's just like there's such a such like a raw like realism like it it even though you can tell that some of this stuff is filmed on sets like it and it, it looks like sets sometimes mm-hmm. um i i think particularly and i don't know like obviously how do you recreate you know 1940s harlem sure without like recreating 1940s harlem like there you're not going to go somewhere and find the you know the nice like well kept row homes and the beautiful like you know, because you read all that stuff about same thing with like Baltimore in like the the fifties and sixties, like these these beautiful homes with like elaborate woodworking and just like that just went to ruin because of drugs. Um, so a lot of this stuff does feel staged, but I think that you know, I I think it's I think it's one of Lee's most restrained directorial like uh, accomplishments because I think. He doesn't. He doesn't break the fourth wall, really. Right, like he does in a lot of his movies. And there's only a couple of times where he's clearly filming a shot in order to obviously present some sort of I don't know, like symbolism, like yeah. the KKK members riding off, like almost like mythologically mm-hmm. into the moonlight, you know. Yeah. That basically like sculpts, you know, Malcolm Little's entire childhood and belief system and who he is and who he wants to be is like, mm-hmm. you know, this guy that's going to put like, what, what is that? Like lie that they put on, that he puts on his head? Yeah. Or whatever to like yeah. amp it down, you know, right. that he's willing to go through all these incredible lengths to try and <laughs> emulate or maculate like a white person. Right. And it takes, you know, this man in jail to kind of teach him that he needs to embrace. Right. The person that he is, and I, I don't know. I think it's really yeah. He, he he it is. He stays away from a lot of a lot of like some of his traditional directorial choices in this movie. Um, one of the few like ones that he uses every single movie that he keeps in this is that, um, uh, I guess medium shot like where you see the character and the character's almost like floating 
like with the camera at one point because it's in every single one of his movies at some point or another um that's traditional but he kind of keeps a lot out of a lot of those kind of things that he does uh, out of this movie and it's really i i love the beginning of that movie like i i i know even even the idea that it's sets and stuff like that like you know i i love the way that all of that is filmed in the first like 45 50 minutes of that movie yeah agreed. um i it makes me really like wish i could see a crime movie almost done in like the 20s or 30s or 40s or something that he would direct because i really love the style that he uses um it's like this it's a it's a mixture of like kind of older styles mixed with Lee's own kind of aesthetic choices, and um, I, I really like the combination of that. Rewatching it again after I don't know thirty years almost watching this movie, I, I really dug the first hour of this. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that aspect of it. I think it's really impressive that this is Lee's fifth movie. It's pretty crazy, really. <laughs> it really is. Like, can you consider how how many years he spans? in this movie um with like these different styles and these you know uh different locations and stuff like that that he's filming in uh it's incredible like what he's able to accomplish when pretty much what he has to his credit at this point is she's got to have it um school days do the right thing which is amazing better blues and then jungle fever um which still are a little bit more on the indie track there um for something this large it's it's really damn impressive, like what he's able to accomplish here. Because um, he's still young, he's still really yeah. young at this point. And I think that maybe an older director might like exercise some editorial restraint in terms of like telling the story, mm-hmm. and might do the thing like where you maybe condense that childhood or just refer to it, or you don't show as much of the. Because they spend a long time, and to your point, like it is, it's it's fascinating. It's well directed, and the acting is incredible. And if they spend a long time of him being like, like on the rise as like a you know like a numbers runner and a mm-hmm. whatever a bagman for this powerful gangster at the time, and it's like, but it's also like gives that much more weight when he goes back to visit Archie. Uh huh. Uh huh like strung out and crazy basically like sitting there and Malcolm just wants to like help him get some measure of peace because he's sort of forgiven him. Like, I never would have shot you. But, um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, it, it it works really well. And again, like the runtime is, is a little prohibitive, I think, but it's definitely worth sitting through to the end. And it's, it's an amazing performance by, um, yeah, and that's interesting that you say that because you know how I am with runtimes. Um, right. I mean, it's pretty obvious that I hate like really long movies. It didn't bother me that much until after the return from Mecca. Like, I think the build up to the assassination, like it's all, and it's not because like I was like dreading that assassination part or anything like that. It was I just thought it was kind of dull. Um, like after the return from Mecca, it's like, you know, it's coming and it feels like it takes too long to get there. Um, and that was the only part that I thought drug in some ways. Otherwise, like, I mean, what is it? What was it? Three and a half hours. Right. Um, like I, I did it in two sittings, um, which is really impressive for me. So, uh, yeah, I was really like engaged, um, in this. I think I stopped after the prison stuff. Um, 
for you know a half hour maybe or something like that to get some things done and then went back to it and finished it um but yeah that was the only part that i really thought was like slow it was like what is that the last 20 25 minutes maybe or something like that? Mm, yeah 25 yeah. minutes i thought that was the only part that really kind of like drugged to me um yeah if you haven't seen this like this is one of those movies that it's like it's like if the last movie you need to watch it because it's one of the best acting performances I've seen the past 20 years. Like you have to see it for that. This movie, um, you just need to see it. I mean, like, uh, if only for like some kind of historical knowledge, if you're not going to read about Malcolm X, um, at least you can watch this movie and kind of enjoy a good movie and kind of get some understanding of like the power of, you know, this man and like, you know, like what he was, you know, fighting for um but yeah I, I i really enjoyed watching this i think i i think i liked it better this time around than i did in the 90s because i think i was a child that didn't know anything um at all but i i think having a lot more understanding and historical context i think as an adult i enjoy this a hell of a lot more like yeah i mean i watched it in one setting so it was captive about the, mm-hmm. which is actually like for really long movies, that's unusual for me anymore to sit down and be able to watch something just like at once without pause or mm. I don't know, whatever, like to just sit there and like watch a three and a half hour movie. Yeah. Mostly because I have to take breaks to, you know, I'll get something to eat or I'll like start a load of dishes or whatever. Like I'll right. do something sure. else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My free time is so limited now that I have to cram so much into it. But um yeah, like I just sat here on the couch one night when Frankie mm. was away. Yeah. And just put it on and then three and a half hours later it was done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I think especially the first half of this movie like goes by like nothing. Um I yeah. I agreed. Uh Do you think that, so Dolores Barclay, which we've never heard of before from the Associated Press, says that uh, she said there's a lot about this movie that should be buried into our minds, but she says that Lee's movie, despite its good intentions, does not inspire any visceral realities. It's simply too superficial, too theatrically poised, without any kind of hard edge that would make it a masterpiece. She says that we should be feeling like we, you would think the dramatization of uh, Malcolm's life would evoke some kind of feeling, whether it's, you know, like a, a lot of feelings like rage, sympathy, hope, anger. And she says that she didn't think that the movie had necessarily kind of got that kind of emotional output from a viewer. Hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I feel like you, I, I felt for him as a person throughout most of the movie. I mean, I don't know. Like, it's, it, it's hard to argue against that, I guess, but it's not. Like, when I, his I, house gets firebombed, like, you definitely feel like a visceral reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When he's in Mecca, like I think there's a definite One, yeah. Agreed with like, the Mecca, yeah, yeah. Relief for this man, or I don't, mm-hmm. I don't even know like how to explain it. But you feel like okay, like 
this is the thing that like saves him or brings him out mm-hmm. and lets him whatever find peace and yeah, I, think I, I feel a lot of like admiration, like when he speaks. I think there's mm-hmm. like yeah. the way that Denzel like it draws you in. Yeah, I think there's also I feel for him when in the very first scene and like you know scenes later on, like where it's so obvious that he's trying to fit into a white world. Um, and the lengths that he goes to do that at times, like I think I feel for him. Um. I get her point, don't get me wrong, because what she's saying there, and the reason I brought that up even, is because since we're talking about docudramas or biopics, I think it's probably the number one complaint that you could level at any of these movies, right? A lot of times, is that because they're so, they're, a lot of them are so keen about like kind of documenting something that really happened that you can lose the emotion of it, right? Like, I mean, I think that's a common complaint about any kind of docudrama. Um I don't think this complaint. I get. I I I understand it because you could level it at any of them. I don't think it it works here. Um, I just don't like. I I would say it works more for American Gangster than it does for this. Like that complaint. I agree with that. You know. Um. Yeah. Like I, it's, and I think a lot of movies like you brought up Ray. Right. Great performance. But I I feel that way about Ray, but I also feel the same way about Walk the Line. I mean, I don't think I have any kind of visceral feelings necessarily. I think the only visceral feeling in Walk the Line that I have is um when he goes to Folsom at the end. You know, I mean, uh, but I don't get a lot of visceral feelings from a lot of different biopics. Um, so yeah, I I don't think that's true here. At least for me, it didn't seem true, but. Um, but I think examining through them through that light is an interesting exercise to see, sure. like, you know, whether they can make you feel. All right. Any final thoughts on this before we move on? No, I mean, I think it's a really important film and I think it's one yeah. that needs to be seen. So, yeah. All right. So number two on your list is 2003's Badass. And I'm not going to pronounce, uh, say it like it's spelled, um, but it's two A's um, and uh, and then a D and then an A and then five S's. I've had to learn the five S's as I'm typing this over and over and over. I've had to learn the spelling of this. And an exclamation, yeah, exclamation point. Yeah, put the exclamation point at the end, it usually catches it. Right. Even if you don't have the right number of S's. <laughs> right. right. Um, so this is directed in um, stars Mario Van Peebles. Uh, and also stars Joy Bryant, Neil Long, Terry Crews, Ozzie Davis, Dave Allen Greer, and Rain Wilson. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 84% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you have it as number two on the list? Um, so it's a follows the story of Melvin Van Peebles, um, who's achieved some measure of fame for his um, uh, hit movie Watermelon Man. Um, and wants to make a more serious um, film about the Black experience, the Black community, but finds that it's really difficult to get financing for it um, because most people just want him to make like funny movies like Watermelon Man. So uh, Van Peebles, um, through great effort and like a lot of setbacks, basically finances the movie himself. by using non-SAG actors and people who are outside of the, um, I guess the director's guild in order to get around certain like legal restrictions that he would have. 
um, to make Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, uh, which was also in the top five black exploitation movies of all time mm-hmm. um, episode. Um, so, and it follows uh, his struggles, like as a a black director, and you know, like a black screenwriter, and being taken seriously in a predominantly white industry. Um, and then his interpersonal struggles with his his children, and in particular his son Mario Van Peebles, who plays him um, as you know. He plays Melvin. He plays his father. Um, his son, his daughter, his girlfriend, his friends. Um, just this dedication to making this movie um, that sort of drives those people away and kind of makes him seem like a tyrant or, you know, like an unfeeling, like, whatever, dictator at times. Um, and then, like, his difficulty in getting the movie distributed. Um, but being able to play it and having it become one of the or the highest grossing independent movie of that year when it came out. Um, really great look at uh, number one, independent filmmaking. And I think independent filmmaking from the perspective of, you know, like a non-white person. Um, really, it's, it's funny at times and it's endearing at times and it's, kind of heartbreaking at times. Um, he's a maddening individual. Like, I don't think that Mario Van Peebles strays from portraying his father as the, like, basically uncompromising man that it seems that he was. Um, but, like, all great artists, I think, are, like, uncompromising because he's just dedicated to his vision. Um, and just a really good, like, like hard-earned love letter from a son to a father, and I, I really appreciated that part of it. Um, I think he's great playing Melvin Van Peebles. Um, the thing that I think is funny is that this movie was... I don't want to use the term ripped off because it's not fair necessarily, um, but Eddie Murphy's uh, Rudy Ray Moore um, biopic from last year mm-hmm. about... Um, uh, Dolomite, like the making of Dolomite. Right. In essence, like almost beat for beat, just shamelessly rips off this movie. Mm. And I guess in a lot of ways, that's because Rudy Ray Moore like sort of had the same, you know, like rise to prominence and then just using his own like influence and his own personal like wealth to to make a film that they could then show independently. But a lot of the beats are the same. And it's funny because I didn't think of it when I saw the, I, I wish I could remember that movie. It was called Dolomite or whatever. Um, I don't remember thinking of it, but then watching this again, I was like, right, like exactly. Like that's why that movie felt so familiar to me. Dolomite is my name was the name of the movie. Okay. Yeah. Because like I was basically watching it for a second time, but um. Mm-hmm. And that movie's good. Like it's, I I think it's worth watching. This is a better film, mm-hmm. um, and a more interesting look at that you know that time period and just filmmaking in general and the creative process and right. I guess the sacrifices that somebody has to make to follow follow their dreams. Um, yeah, Nia Long is really good in it. Uh, Peebles is good in it. Rain Wilson has a really great role in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny to watch like recreations of 
the filming of that movie, having like recently, you know, right, watched it, yeah, um, to see it like look so clean, I guess, like because because sweet 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 facts is a very um, you feel like you're watching like an underground movie when you watch sweet sweet facts, right? Um, even in the comfort of your like in the comfort of my couch, yeah, streaming it like on my right whatever, <laughs> sure. Like, it still felt, like, kind of, like, dirty. And- uh-huh. Well, it's fascinating having watched that so recently, like, well, a year ago. And um, and then watching this again for the first time since whatever. You probably, I think, bought this on DVD as well at Walmart. But, um, and, and made me watch it. Um, badass. Um, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that's... Or yeah, maybe right. we both... I I no I had it, I bought it. Yeah, that's I think that's right. Okay, um, yeah, because I had it before I sold all my DVDs years ago. But um, that's right, it was on my shelf. But uh, but yeah, the watching it again and now like having the context of seeing them so close to together, it's like there's actually some really horrific shit. Like that, I think it's interesting how fair Mario Van Peebles is to his father, to, despite some of the trauma that he experienced during the filming of this movie, like things like, you know, like cutting his hair, right? Like, you know, I mean, putting your son in the position of having to simulate sex at the age of whatever it was, 12 or 13 or whatever. Like, I mean, it it, it is. And the fact that he can look back on that and have this even hand about like, the reverence for his father, the respect for his father, but also admit the flaws of his father and the trauma that his father calls to those around him shows me that someone who is very, has, has matured and grown to be uh, like a, an, a really good arbiter of being of, fa- of fairness. Like, you know, um, so I think from that aspect of it, from father to or son to father, it's a really fascinating, um, just you know, love letter, love letter slash, you know, kind of I guess honest love letter. You know, looking at it from that respect, it's just a fascinating movie um, that he can embody all those different facets of his own father into it and do it fairly. Um, and I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's um, it's a really well paced movie too. Like it uh. I think it's appropriate. Like again, I think it appropriately balances. You know, there's some titillation and there's some like, drama mm-hmm. and some action. It's definitely some comedy, um, and just really like great small performances. Like David Allen Greer is really good in it. He is. Terry Crews is really good in it. Mm-hmm. And there's there's just a lot of like very. It's just it's it's really fun and it is. Yep. It really tells like a really a complete story about what's in essence a small almost like minute piece of history but that carries a lot of import i don't know i think it's really worth watching yeah um and that's what i wrote down here for myself was that i out of all out of the whole thing here this is the most fun ride of the bunch of these movies um that you can sit down and like not feel sad or angry or depressed or we're going to talk about this next but i think there's something something in me that really values watching movies about the creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
maybe because like I I like to create or whatever. Um, I just find it really fascinating to watch like these portrayals of people that are like artists or innovators or whatever more than I want to watch like the biography of a man who was like a criminal because I don't know that I can necessarily sure relate to that but like I definitely can relate to I'm not not a filmmaker directly but you know like someone who's like that invested has that much passion sure um so the Washington Post uh, Michael Sullivan the Washington Post I do want to ask you about this one as well he says that um it hits all the marks when it comes to the specific details of the making of sweet sweet back uh the budget hassles the run-ins with the law the crises of artistic vision the film's eventual out of left field popularity but he says it never really captures the angry zeitgeist that was in the that was the film's incubator um, he says that's partly because of the strange detachment that pervades badass, a detachment that is underscored by Mario Van Peebles' decision to intercut his narrative with stage talking head style interviews with actors playing the historical figures. Um, he says, curiously, however, such faux documentary touches have the cumulative effect of making the film seem less, not more real. How do you feel about that decision itself to have the actors like Rain Wilson was a TK Carter. Um, he was just fucking a phenomenal in the in the corner, um, playing Bill Cosby in this and doing a Cosby impersonation. How do you feel about those people like being intercut with this in that faux documentary way? I'm fine with it. I mean, it's it's whatever. It's like it's not an artistic conceit that I'm a huge fan of. Like, it feels very Chappelle show to me. But at the same time, like, I get it. And I I don't think it detracts from the movie. Yeah. How do you feel about the idea, like, this claim that it fails to capture the angriness of Sweet Sweetback from a professional reviewer from the Washington Post? Do you think it's supposed to? No. Right. I don't think that's the point. It, it right. captures the frustration and... The arduous journey of like the filmmaking process. Right. Like, Sweet Sweetback captures the anger of Sweet Sweetback. Like, if you want to get that, you need to go watch that movie. Right. Right. This is about yeah. behind right. the scenes of that movie, not right. that movie itself. You know? Yeah. This is this is an ode to the making of that movie, not an ode to that movie. Right. Like, right. and it's like for a professional reviewer from the Washington Post to not fucking understand that is just beyond me. Um, but okay. Uh, listen to it's us. Just dumb. It's, it's a dumb hot take. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I guess we all have dumb hot takes sometimes, but um, but Remember, we're 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 professionals now, so. We are right. We got we have a hundred episodes, um, uh, which in uh, Martin Scorsese's terminology would be roughly, um, uh, well, with the quick cages, probably uh, two hundred and fifty hours of content um, to uh, for people to listen to. Um, how many hours does Scorsese have? Um, <clears throat> You're trying to make me mad. <laughs> All right. Number one on your list is 1996's Basquiat. It is directed by Julian Schnabel. It stars Jeffrey Wright in the title role. 
Also, Michael Wincott, Bencio Del Toro, Claire Forlani, David Bowie, Dennis Hopper, Gary Oldman. It has a 68% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 77% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you have it number one on the list? What is the critic score? 68. Really? Yeah. I will say this. I'll just tell you now. Like, the negative reviews are all um like 2.5 out of like mostly are like 2.5 out of 5 or 2.5 out of 4 um it's like this movie even if it in it's in the negative reviews just means that it's liked it's just not well liked so so i saw this movie in the theater in 96 whenever it came out mm-hmm. and have not seen it since and okay. It was honestly like something that just came to mind after we thought of this topic of of doing this topic. Um, like it was a later addition in my head to whatever this list. Um, I was amazed at how much I loved this movie watching it again, and I remember liking it a lot when I was young. But I think just like I think the the innovation. And almost like like avant-garde approach that Schnabel takes to like making a movie. That kind of shows his inexperience, like I guess at that point with filmmaking. Also like shows number one, his appreciation for um Basquiat's art, but also like his just appreciation for the almost like I don't know, they have that weird like bohemian disconnect of I guess being like a homeless artist who's like struggling to whatever find his way and try and become famous and I think it does a pretty adequate job of portraying the rise and fall without becoming too um too focused on the drug abuse really like um I mean I don't want to watch a movie about artists and end up watching you know Requiem for a Dream you know what I mean like I don't need like right hyper-realistic drug use. I just, like, it's there, and they show it all the time, and they show his inability, basically, to comport himself sometimes because of it. Um, I think the performances in it, like, top to bottom, it's, it's amazing, like, the people that are in this movie and who were, you know, brought in to fill these roles. Like, Bowie as Warhol is genius. Mm-hmm. Um, Hopper is really good in it. Uh, Wincott, like for being a guy that mostly just plays like the villain in movies, does yeah. a great job. Weirdo villain, like, but yeah, he's great in this, yeah. Flamboyantly gay, like I don't know, artophile or whatever, like mm-hmm. art lover who kind of breaks this this man onto the scene. Um mm-hmm. I, I think that I think Del Toro's really good in it. Yeah, Del Toro, um uh, Forlani is the best thing I've ever seen her do, honestly. She's really good in it. I'll tell you the revelation in this movie to me, and I had 100% forgotten that it was him, was Jeffrey Wright as Bosky. Mm-hmm. Like, I think of Jeffrey Wright as the moderately frumpy, put upon either lame, like, side character or guy who's done a villainous thing, but it's the most, like, banal villainous thing. Like mm-hmm. in um, Syriana, the guy that's, like, you know. Right. Like yeah. helping the oil industry basically yep. like break the Middle East. 
but he's just some like nebbish guy in a suit that goes running in the morning. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. but to see number one, just like the weird like ticks and vocal idiosyncrasies of Basquiat, like right, just captures it. It just feels you would not imagine that that man is not that way in real life watching that movie. Right. Like, if you would take somebody from 1996 who just walked out of Basquiat in the theater Mm -hmm. and show them Jeffrey Wright today, like, they would have no idea that was the same person. Sure. Like, you can't even, like, because it's just, it's such a invested performance. Mm -hmm. And it almost, in a lot of ways, like, so we were talking the other day, I don't think it was on the podcast, but we were talking about companion pieces in some regard. I can't remember what movies. Oh, we were talking about um, The Kid Detective, and I said that I think Brick is, like, the perfect... Like, if right, you're having, yeah. like, a double feature, like, that's your that's your companion piece. Right. Like, for me, like, it's this and Midnight Cowboy. Like, you show those two movies together. Mm. And it's almost like you're capturing that same boho or noho, whatever they call, like, whatever, that art world, you know, almost like outsiders look at, like, but from two completely different sides of the spectrum, you know what I mean? Yeah. But ultimately, like, from two sides that are the same thing, both these self-destructive, you know, like, people who are just kind of obsessed with the idea of becoming successful in the thing they love doing. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, with Joe Buck wanting to just like fuck old women and Basquiat wanting to like paint and play right. music and just do whatever, but they both want to be successful in that. And kind of like these other like people that kind of become satellites around their, you know, their large personalities. And it's just, um, I, 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 I absolutely love this movie. Like, I, I'm, the, and I'm not a huge fan of Basquiat's artwork. Like there's some stuff about uh, like a lot, and I I really do kind of like that. Um, I don't know, like urban urban like spray paint art, um, almost like modern expressionist aesthetic. Um, and some of Basquiat's stuff I think is really good. Like it really speaks to me, but some of it I'm just not a huge fan of. Um, but it makes like this movie makes me like love it. Like I love watching. Like, right, just capture that creative process of like painting and doing things. And I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a brilliant movie. And I, I like the fact that it almost does like break the fourth wall sometimes. Like when he's like hopeful and young and he can look up at the sky and see the, the man surfing in on the waves because like his obsession mm-hmm. is eventually going to Hawaii. And then when he gets older and has a measure of success and he looks up at the sky that's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Grilani is great in it, and their relationship is great. And again, like, that's sort of the reason why I made the comparison point to um, Requiem is because, like, it's so similar in circumstance, but not in end result, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. Like, you can feel, like, so many similarities where you know that, like, mm-hmm. from Selby's novel and then through, you know, um, uh, Aronofsky's direction, like there's that connection to that part of New York and that part of like the world and that lifestyle mm-hmm. 
but just like these small degrees of separation that just make it so. And his like I don't know, it's it, it's heartbreaking. Like watching him watch videos of Warhol, and like just basically like die inside as he's sitting there watching it. Um, and I really like the fact that they don't finish with his death necessarily. Mm-hmm. You don't have to see this man die of a heroin overdose. Right. It ends with like this really hopeful. You know, nah, we're not gonna we're not gonna go to Maui. We're gonna go to Ireland. We're gonna drink at every bar, mm-hmm. and then it's just like that's you know this the way that it captures. I don't know. I think it's yeah. I I really liked watching this movie. I, I don't know how I know Jeffrey Wright. I knew him from this. He has a three episode arc with him and James Earl Jones. I don't know if you remember this. It's towards later in Homicide, um, Homicide Life on the Street. Um, there's a arc where it's like James Earl Jones and is the father and he's Jeffrey Wright's the son and James Earl Jones is having an affair with, Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? And Jeffrey Wright's fucking phenomenal in those episodes. And I knew him from that and I knew him from whatever the first casino Royale he's in. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, I've known him from a lot of things over the years, like little things here and there. I always thought he was a phenomenal actor and had never gotten enough credit. Um, the fact that like this is like his third role or something like that, and he yeah. just blows it away, like is is insane. Um, everybody in here is really good. Like, and like, you already mentioned that, like all the all the acting in here, and Gary Oldman's really good in his most normal role ever. I think, right? Just a dude, <laughs> a dude that eats spaghetti. And likes to paint. Right. And loves his daughter, right? It's yeah. like, you know, it's like yeah, it's like the most normal Gary Oldman role that you can imagine. Um and uh which is interesting because I just when I was looking it up, Jeffrey Wright in the new uh Pattison Batman is going to play Commissioner Gordon. Um, which is funny. But <clears throat> um the only thing that I felt watching this movie, because I am not somebody that knows this. I don't know the art scene very well. Like I, I know famous painters and those kind of things. I don't know this scene particularly well, like with Warhol. Um, and I know you know a lot more, a hell of a lot more about that scene than I do. Like I'm, I'm not really into like the abstract art and stuff like that. It felt to me that like, I didn't get to know who Basquiat was necessarily. Like I got to know about him, but I didn't know if I, and you can tell me this because I don't know. Like, I, f- I didn't feel like I knew him necessarily. I felt like I knew what he did, and I felt like I knew his personality and his char- some of his characteristics and stuff like that, but I didn't feel for him necessarily. Um, I felt for him in circumstance, but I didn't get to, like, a sense of who this guy was but or know who he was, I guess, and I put no in air quotes. But it's like, is that part of the point? Is he knowable? Like, from what you know about him, like, in terms of, like, the real life? And does this, is this capturing that kind of, like, unknowability about him in some ways? I mean, I think that's kind of the purpose, right? Okay, all right. You're taking, if if you were interested in seeing Basquiat in 1996, mm-hmm. you probably were old enough to, I mean, this is a man that was, like, on the cover of Time Magazine, you know what I mean? Like, you probably knew who he was. I wasn't. I was too young for that. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. like if, if we if it was like us 
at 40 years old or whatever in gotcha. six, like uh-huh. watching we would have had with with our our cultural knowledge and just our knowledge of like world events, we would have known who this man was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just like you, you know who Robert Mapleford was, right? No. No. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Like <laughs> I, I, I think you probably would have known who this guy was. <laughs> so I think it's almost portraying like Robert. Go ahead. Robert. 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 Okay. Um, I think it's almost saying that, like, because it starts with lies. Like, everything that he says in the beginning of the movie are lies about himself and lies about what he is and where he is and how he esteems himself. And it's always about him trying to, you know, this, like, yeah, kind of, like, unknowable soul, like, just trying to like reinvent himself constantly to be something that he can be proud of himself and, you know, that he can reconcile with like his love of just making art and who he is. And it's like, to me, that's one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is where he's sitting there and he's imagining painting the um, stack of tires with the paint and he's doing it in his mind and it's like changing yeah. what it is and it turns into the tree and he like leans back because he's so happy that he's like done this thing and transformed this you know these objects into something completely dissimilar that gives him like happiness and he's he's OD'd at that point you know like he's right. like basically like passed out and almost dead and his, his girlfriend I mean a lot of the stuff in this movie isn't true based to based on his life or it like mm-hmm. omits a lot of things that he actually did. And a lot of people are composites, I think, or aside from people that actually existed, like, you know. Or like loosely based. Like, cause apparently yeah. the, the Omen character is loosely based, I think, on Schnabel, like, um, himself. Yeah, he was, well, I mean, the, so that's what, that, that's Schnabel's thing was, uh, I think those are actually his paintings in the scene with, uh, mm. Gotcha. Um, who is that? Park? Not not Parker Posey. What's her name? Um, is it? Oh, that's Parker Posey. Isn't it? Yeah. Okay. The scene with Parker Posey where they go in and there's the shattered ceramic mm-hmm. paintings. Those are actually, I think, Schnabel paintings. Gotcha. In that scene, because um, that's what he did was he painted like um, broken ceramic uh, collages on those or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you're supposed to like know him as much as you're supposed to feel. Gotcha what he feels and so I guess the other question I had about this um okay so so real quickly Robert Maplethorpe um I I know his pictures um I didn't know who that guy was like at all but I've seen his photos like you know I'm in some of those like it's like I, I recognize that aspect of him, but I don't know who that guy is at all. Um, this is my point. In nineteen, in like the mid nineteen nineties, right? As an adult, you would have known who Robert Mapplethorpe was. Gotcha. Like you would yeah. know him by sight, right? Probably. Gotcha. Even um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I probably don't have the requisite background that I need probably maybe to like kind of like understand like the absolute import. I I heard the name when I was this age, but I only watched this movie because it was talked about so much and I was into indie film at this point 
by 1996. So when it came out on video in 97 or whatever, 98, I watched it. You know, I mean, like, and that's that's the only reason I watched it, not because I necessarily knew much about anything about any of this. I knew who Warhol was. Um, you know, I'd seen some pictures of Warhol, but I didn't know a lot about it. So I just watched it and um, understood that it was really good. Uh, rewatching it again, the thing, one of the things, scenes I found most fascinating out of this was the walk-in scene, like with the interviewer. Mm, yeah. Um, because it was such a kind of almost tangible discomfort in that scene of like watching it of, and again, I don't understand the art scene very well, but I'm assuming that was kind of like the art elite trying to make him look foolish and stupid. Is that oh, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, it would have been like a gotcha journalism piece where it's like, <clears throat> let's let's find this guy well, because they they make reference to it later in the idea that um he was called a, a Warhol's um what's the exact word Warhol's uh. Not puppet, but um, mascot. Mm-hmm. All right, yes, yeah, so that's that, yep, that's the word. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you're taking this, and because Basquiat kind of says this himself in the movie that you're taking, if if I was white, would they say that I was locked in a basement? You know, they would just mm-hmm. say that I. So it's the same thing. It's the idea that if he was a white man making these paintings, would you be trying to dig at like, they use words like picking any or whatever, right. to, like, right. draw out a reaction. Like, do they want to mm-hmm. get this is the angry black man from the street, or this is the fraud from the middle class home who's, you know, his father's an accountant, like, he doesn't know anything about art or whatever, instead of just appreciating him for who he is, and I think that's the... Yeah. I, I, I think that all of those scenes kind of show without, like, I don't think they ever glamorize the drug use like they do in a lot of movies. And, no. you know, like, I think this is their way of kind of humanizing the idea of the drug use. Because, you know, one of the more powerful scenes in the movie, again, is like him towards the end going to the um, institution where his mother is locked up and trying to get her out. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this guy who's a multimillionaire. Like, he can buy anything he wants and he can't like get his mom out of an institution. But it's yeah. also, is he so self-centered that he's only thinking about it, you know, at this one, like, rare lucid moment because everything else is falling apart in his life, and now he's like, oh, maybe now I should take care of my mother, even though he's probably had the ability to do so for a long time. Right. Yeah, I... Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they glamorize it at all. In fact, I think they, like, almost ignore it to some degree, <laughs> to me. Like... Um, there's times later in this movie where I don't know, unless you know drug addicts really well, like, not really well, but at least well enough, like, I don't think you would even know sometimes that, like, how, how severe the addiction is, um, until that scene where he goes back and meets with Forlani again, and you see all the marks on his face and all those kind of things, or the, it's the scene before that, I guess, where Warhol talks to him about his dermatologist, um, it's like, they actually keep it pretty damn low key throughout all this and kind of ignore the drug use with just very subtle references to it, um, which I think is nice because it allows you to focus on 
him rather than the fact of like him as addict, which I actually found refreshing in some ways because anytime somebody's addicted to heroin, any hard drug, they get dominated by that label. Um, so I actually found that really refreshing in this, and that it's like he's still functioning despite all this. Maybe not well sometimes, but he's still functioning. Um, everybody, on the other I, side, on the other side of that point, though, it also is kind of a condemnation, I think, of the art world in the sense that mm. everyone is just willing to kind of let him destroy himself because they're all making so much money off of right. his talent. I mean, you think. Um, Bernie, I can't remember his last name, the Hopper character, mm-hmm. you know, the Parker Posey character, like all these people have made so much money off of right. him and he's making $2 off of a sketch that he does for somebody so he can like buy a sandwich. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the, yeah, that's why I think you're supposed to think of him as unknowable. And I think that even though like he really was friends with, um, we're all in real life. Like they, they were close acquaintances with each other mm-hmm. and they did have a falling out after they had a, a joint art exhibit that kind of was banned by critics. Um, where he was called world's mascot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the thing is like pairing them together, these two aliens and actually having, you know, somebody like Bowie who knew Warhol intimately <clears throat> definitely was like a close friend of his, like do that portrayal. I think it just perfectly shows how, Maybe it is unknowable to know a true artist. You know what I mean? Like somebody who truly just lives their life to create and sees these things that you can't see. Like that is, you know, yeah, like one of the greatest unknowns. But anyway, I fucking love this movie so much. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to necessarily derail it by like asking you questions about like no, it's fine, it's fine. the meaning of this movie because I, I I do think I just missed the the background needed for. Um, the art world that I just have no idea about anything about it. Um, like so, some of the more subtle nuances maybe I, I miss um, of these kind of things. There's but a, uh, Jeffrey Wright's mediocre, amazing in it, though. Like, yes, there's a mediocre horror movie from last year called Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, that in a lot of ways is a subtle homage to aspects of this movie. Okay. Um, I remember seeing this title. Some of the characterization of it. In no way does it ever present itself as like whatever. And and any relation to it. I only make the connection because it deals with the art world. Mm. Um, But yeah, like you you can see a lot of some of these characters in those characters. Um, I wouldn't recommend watching that movie. Oh, okay. It was, um, it was it was okay. It's, it's not a terrible movie, and I liked it for what it was. But it's not like somebody like, oh, go watch fucking Velvet Buzzsaw. Gotcha. Watch Velvet Goldmine. That's good. Yeah. Have you seen Schnabel's some of his more famous other movies, um, like the Van Gogh movie from a year or two ago with Willem Dafoe? No, you know which one I've seen. Uh, what is that? The butterfly one. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I've also um, seen. Um, what is it? All right, that that sounds really like <laughs> really dismissive. What 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 is it called? Um, the diving bell and the butterfly. Yes, right. I've never seen that, but um, right. It's 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 part of the door and the floor 
um, trilogy of satellite <laughs> media movies. Yes, that, that's what I assume. So yeah, like I, that's why I probably dismiss it as the butterfly movie. But um, before Night Falls is good. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, like... Javier Bardem. Hmm. Maybe one of his first movies early hmm. on, definitely it's 2000. Gotcha. I haven't seen this one. I'm looking it up right now. The one that's the Van Gogh. I imagine it's probably pretty amazing though. An Eternity's Gate, yeah, that that was on Netflix like a couple years ago, or um. Oh yeah, remember. I recognize um. Oh, it's Defoe. Oh my god, yeah. cast. Yeah, Willem mm-hmm. Defoe, Rupert Friend, Mads Mikkelsen, Emmanuel Senior, yeah. Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Isaac yeah. yeah, yeah. I know what I'm watching this weekend. <laughs> What's this weekend? Ninety one horror. Ninety one horror. Yeah, I only have to watch one more movie. That's something that I can watch. There you go. Yeah, you got it. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'd be interested in watching this too. Although, I mean, I don't know anything about Van Gogh either, other than the year and uh, suicide. So, and his famous paintings, I guess. But I know nothing about his life or the How art do you world. I know any of this stuff. I don't know. Like, I, I am. It's not that I'm not impressed by paintings, but like that kind of like. That kind of art form, like, isn't something that I know anything about or was ever really taught about that much, it feels like, in school. Although I did have an art history class, and that's where I grew, like, for some appreciation for much older artwork, like, um, from, like, the 16, 1700s and stuff like that. Um, and some of, like, the, uh, like, European stuff from like the 1800s, like Spanish stuff, like uh, what's what the hell's the name? Um, <laughs> see, I, I haven't thought about this stuff for so long. I'm forgetting everybody's names. What's the guy with the the painting with like their arms stretched out, like with the firing squad? Goya? Goya, yes, I love Goya stuff. Um, Madrid, nineteen something, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I love Goya stuff. A lot of that. Um, he's the Francisco one with. Goya. Francisco, but yeah, he's the one also with like Saturn it, devouring his young. Yes, yeah, that's a that did all the woodcuts of um, or he did some woodcuts. Of he did do some woodcuts, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then there's like a a lot of like uh like fifteen sixteen hundreds like religious paintings, like you know, like there's usually like Bible stories that I really like, just like the painting style of them. Um, yeah. uh, I really like that. I think it's Dutch style from like the. 1600s like, like Bruegel and shit like that. I I, I do like Bruegel? I do like Bruegel, yeah. Um, but I'm also thinking I think it's like Van something. Um, uh, no, I'm not gonna <laughs> no. Uh, every every cowgirl with the blues. Um, uh, I can't remember the name. Yeah, Ike. Yeah, I think that's it. Yep. Um. I think that's one of them. Yes, I do like that's the style that I like a lot. Um what is that? So that is that's Belgium, I guess. Well that's where he died. Yeah, born in Belgium. Yeah. So just realism. Yeah, I really well, is it though? Like I, I mean some of it is. Like I no, I I don't know what it's called. I don't know any of that shit. <laughs> I probably do, because you made me think of Van Eyck. Like, this is the only conversation we've ever had in probably 10 years where I haven't, like, looked at my phone every single time. Like, I want to jog my memory. I'm just remembering. Right. 
Um, <laughs> this, this is the thing that doesn't. Yeah, I mean, but it's like, um, but yeah, like that that style, like with the very like it it is very realistic, kind of like faces and stuff like that. But like the everything else around it, it like feels like too bright and too colorful, um, and like too detailed, almost like but in like some sort of like non realistic way at times. Like it's 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 really bizarre. Like I really love that art style though. Um, but yeah, when it comes to modern art, I know shit. I don't know. Is, that, is it is it pre Raphaelite? Is that what the style is? Oh, I don't know. It says uh, movement is Northern Renaissance. Mm. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've never heard that. Oh, uh, yeah, Northern I did. Renaissance. Yeah. Um, they were eating fucking lockies and pierogies and shit. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so because it occurred, it's it's called this because it occurred north of the Italian Renaissance, which I guess is the most famous Renaissance. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I'd have to look up some more like paintings, but there's like some stuff that I specifically like really love a lot. Um, uh, there's one where yeah, I can't remember the name of the painting or anything like that, but I just remember. Like, it's the shadows and stuff like that. I guess it's probably why I like film noir, too, and stuff so much. Is like, the way that they played with, like, dark and light in those kind of paintings uh, really appeals to me um, during that time period. Um, like, the 1600s and stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah. So. But, yeah, I don't know shit about anything about art, Frank. I took one art history class in college, and um, other than that, it's just, like, whatever they taught me, like, in fucking seventh grade. Um, about this painting was done by this guy. So it's like, I know Starry Nights is Van Gogh. I don't know shit beyond that. There's a self-portrait by Van Gogh that I know. I don't know shit other than what else Van Gogh do? Sunflowers? Oh, yeah, right. Lots of sunflowers. Like, there's the Starry Night. Didn't he paint, like, stop, like lots of star flowers? Or star flowers, sunflowers, though? Like He has one really famous one. He's got the right. text. It's also really famous. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just would think because you're really well read that you might know some. Um... I, I I don't. Yeah, it's, that's not a thing that I would read about necessarily a lot. I'll be honest. Um, just like paintings and stuff like that. Um, a lot of uh, any other like random painting knowledge I have comes from because paintings or like you know woodworking or whatever the fuck they're called like when they're done in like marble like would would be related to uh um like a short story or a poem maybe is like inspired by and it's like connected to in some way so <clears throat> there's like you know some paintings and painters that i know that are very specific to the 1800s because they did a lot of tennyson like paintings based mm. off tennyson poems and stuff um like there's a really like painting that I love based off Lady of Shalott. Uh yeah, so there's like random shit like that that I know. But yeah, I'm I'm not very keen on any of that stuff. Not that I don't like it, just that I just don't choose to read about any other and ever did. Um so it was all uh supplementary knowledge it seemed to me, based around literature or classes that I one class I had to take. So yes, I've exposed my ignorance about all of this stuff. <laughs> I sound pretty smart, so whatever. 
Well, you actually met someone that was related to the whole Warhol circle, right? Like yeah, a long time when, ago. Long time ago. And who was that again? His name was Billy Nane. He was um, one of Warhol's like stand-ins, I guess. Okay. I suppose that was probably after Warhol got shot by um, uh, Valerie uh, Solanas. Um, he used to have like people that would like dress up like him, so they wouldn't be able to, I guess, target him or whatever. But mm. or maybe just to draw attention on him. It's all kind of fuzzy to me because it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Billy Dean. N-A-M-E. At where? Uh, he gave a talk at U of D. Right. And then didn't you like go and like talk to him with your friends like at a I diner think, or something? Yeah. No, it was at Deer Park. Deer Park. Okay. Yeah. They let us in with the um, minor band so we couldn't do any. Mm. Gotcha. None of us were 21. But... Yeah, he had had a book come out or something, I think, about his time with Andy World. Um, and he had given, it was when uh, U of D did that whole summer of speakers where you got to meet John Waters and everything. Like, that, was, um, that was a good, good summer. Hmm. It wasn't even in the summer, but it was like a span of time where they would have speakers um, every week come up and give, you know, like talks. And so it was right after. Yeah, so he has, I mean, that would be about right. So he has one called Billy Name Stills from the Warhol Films. Oh, that's somebody else's book. But um, but he, so, yeah, here's one of him in 97 that was released. All all tomorrow's parties, Billy Name's photographs oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. of Andy Warhol's factory. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. Cool. I think it was before it had come out, though, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's been a, that's a long time ago. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was really cool seeing, like, um, I think Shock Value had maybe just been reissued or something with, like, a, ne- like a new coda. Mm-hmm. And that's why, um, what's his name? Uh, Waters was there. Waters was out, like, touring around and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's somebody else. I can't remember where else we saw this. Somebody else did. Yeah, the water thing was really cool. So you actually? Oh, I I don't remember you telling me this ever. So you got to see him talk like you did? Yeah, I got to meet him. Oh, okay. Right. It was um, it was weird. It was in like some lecture hall, kind of, but like not really lecture hall. Like it reminded me of um, like the church gym or whatever. Um, and okay. we sat there and like he. It was maybe 75 people in the room, maybe, really? maybe 100. Uh-huh. Very small. Um, and he, he talked for about an hour, and he told all these stories. And, you know, talked about, like, whatever, like, his life and growing up and making movies and what he was working on then. This is before Pecker maybe came out. That's about right, yeah. Probably. Um, It'd be around that same time period, 96 or something like that. And then afterwards, you got to go into a room and meet him. Like, yeah. You got to talk to him for a couple of minutes, and he signed autographs. He autographed um, a book for me. And yeah, cool. Did um, did he do? Did he introduce um the movie that we saw in like oh four or whatever? What is that? The Tracy yeah, Ullman. She still be demented. Nah. Or no, no, no. The other one. The other one. Uh, I don't fucking remember. <laughs> Oh, uh, Dirty Shane. Um, yeah, he was there. He, he introduced it, right? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so that's the only time I've actually ever seen him. 
um, was when we went to, go to the premiere of that. Um, but I have an autographed copy of Shock Value because um, my uncle smoked weed with him. Um, yeah, um, he gave it to me a long time ago. But um, yeah, they frequented the same gay bars um, and stuff like that. And Waters was over smoking weed with them one night at their apartment and autographed Shock Value for him. So, um, so that's a nice little thing on my shelf over here um, for a guy that I hate. Fifty percent of his movies, but um, um, but I I like I still like a lot of them. Um, okay, all right. So yeah, I'm ignorant about art. Um, we both have autographs from John Waters, and that's that's. I I don't have anymore. Oh, what? You don't value those kind of things, do you at all? I don't care about things. Yeah. I mean, obviously, oh. I care about things. Whatever. Well, right, you don't you don't care about like autographs or anything like that, do you? Right? Yeah. Um, I have the memory. Do I need the autograph? Right. I it's mean, nice. I might still have the book somewhere. It's nice just to look back on those things sometimes. I don't know. It wasn't shock value either. It was a book of like cult movies. Mm. I had an autograph, a page that had the vinyl, and I think. Oh, okay. I don't know if I have that book anymore, and if I do, it's fair. Like I, you know, there's like a thousand books here. So I got it's in there. It's in there. Uh, see, I'm gonna think I need to watch Velvet Buzzsaw because it's like still like one of the ten tabs I have open on my screen right now. Um, I'm gonna look at this tomorrow morning and be confused. <laughs> I mean, you said it's not worth watching. I said it's. I mean, it's yeah, whatever. You told me not to watch it. Look, um, terrible shit. It's better than some of the stuff. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you after this what I watched last night. Um, all right, so yeah, this is a really fun list, though, Frank. Despite like, all list. of our like nonsense here at the end, um, I I really enjoyed watching all these movies, and um, yeah, it was a good list. And I'm really looking forward to next week too because I love that '91 horror list that you have. That's really good. Um. I don't know how you feel about rewatching all of them, but like I, I, I enjoyed every single one. Yeah, I hadn't seen a lot of them, so I was I was really happy with them. Um, and I'm almost through like the the top five movies, you know, uh, take place in 24 hours a day or whatever, like you know, um, which I know you hate that title because it violates your title, but um, but yeah, but it's uh, right. I don't know why I'm not allowed to make up a title for my own goddamn list. <laughs> Um, oh, that's um, much. Wes, you get yes. every you get everything. Yes, for one thing, you get shit on. Yeah, somebody got to change your list title. Uh, you 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 make up everything. Uh, the entire list, all of them. All right. So, uh, but yeah, I'm really excited about the next couple weeks. So, I'm almost on those. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Um. And have a good uh, night. yep, have a good night, have a good week. Goodbye.